Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I started that company with a next door neighbor and an idea. And we took that idea. We both put $5,000 into a bank account and that became the company. And uh, what we did is we worked really, really, really hard on two things in particular. One was the product. We really perfected the product over time. And two was the marketing. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. Our guest today is Mitch Russo. Mitch is a SaaS company founder and he co-founded Time Slips Corp. This is a company that grew to become one of the largest time tracking software companies. In this episode, we discuss the importance of testing your business ideas. A common misconception when selling a product, if it's better to buy an existing business or start one from scratch, And last but not least, how to build a remote work culture. If you want to build an eight-figure business, look no further than this podcast with Mitch, who will provide us with tips and insights into growing and scaling your business. Let's talk with Mitch now. Hey, Mitch, thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, Tyler. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, hey, I love to start out with kind of learning a little bit about you. What do you do now? And can you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Yeah, this is a great time of life for me. I started a software company again about 18 months ago. We published software for coaches. And that is a platform that I had to create because there's nothing else like it. And if you're a coach, you should check it out. Uh, it's called Clientfolio with a dot .io. I also coach clients, which is really the basis of my daily work. And I coach them in one of several programs Uh, We have a program called The Accelerator, and then we have a program built all around this book right here called Power Tribes. That's where we build certification programs for clients. And that's that's basically, and I speak on stage when stages are available. I run web webinars and I run two podcasts. So I'm a pretty busy guy. Yeah. I mean, you've got like an amazing story. There's just way more than I can cover in this short amount of time, but I do want to touch on a few things. One, I'd love to start with Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. You actually ran his company for a while or helped scale it. Could you talk about that a little bit and what made that so unique? Because you've got a twist to this in terms of how you scaled it. I'd love to just share that story. Sure. Well, I just want to be accurate. Sure. Chet Holmes, myself, and Tony started that company together. And what we were able to do was we were able to take a strategy that Chet had began his company with combine it with Tony Robbins and some of the the educational materials Tony had, and then create a whole new base of uh, educational material by hosting a live conference and having um, 15 speakers come 
of which the main speakers, of course, were both Chet and Tony, record all that content and then create an entire business learning environment from that content. So that was the basis of the company. And that's how we started. From there, I worked very closely with Chet and not as closely with Tony until later, about two years into the relationship, uh, Chet stepped away. He was not feeling well at the time. And uh, Tony and I got very close working together. And it was always a joy to work with Tony. And I always learned something in the process. And to this day, I still do. And so you scaled that, if I have my details correctly. I think you got around $30 million in revenue. But the interesting thing, weren't you doing it mostly with a remote workforce at that time? Completely remotely. So we had no assets. We owned, as a corporation, I don't think we even owned a copy machine. It was (laughs) completely virtual. Wow. How did you... Because obviously, you know, and you wrote, you went on to write the book, Invisible Organization, which is essentially about remote teams and virtual organizations. Like, how did you set that up? Because that was kind of ahead of its time in terms of the book is definitely ahead of its time before COVID hit and doing the virtual organization through Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes was kind of on the cutting edge. How did you design that infrastructure without it being all these you know, shortcomings that we often hear about remote environments? We designed it piecemeal, a little at <laughs> a time. Uh, and the reason I say it that way is because there was nothing out there at the time that would allow us to implement many of the strategies that we did. So we had a person who was responsible for the technology and he did an amazing job of basically keeping things in place. We had a virtual call center application, which coupled with a inbound 800 numbers, we were able to basically track every single phone call that came in the time that that ad ran and exactly who it went to and record all those calls. We had that. We had basic CRM. So every person could log into our CRM and see every lead and follow up on those leads. So I would say that we we piecemealed it together to the point where it was held together by strings and duct tape, but it worked. Yeah. So from that entity, is that where you got the idea for the Invisible Organization book? Or was it, I know you also had time slips and I'm assuming that maybe would have also been a remote business. Where did that idea come from to, I love this whole invisible organization concept. See, the thing about time slips is we were not virtual. Ah, okay. We were completely office-based. I kept expanding the space in my office every 18 months. We kept growing and growing and growing. I had a room on the first floor of a steel mill, which is where our offices were based and um, a converted steel mill. And um, that room cost about $300,000 to build because in that room was a full-scale PBX, which we needed in order to take as many incoming calls for both sales as well as tech support. But the interesting thing is that once we got to the point of building this entity out with Chet and Tony, we were able to lease that same equipment for basically less than $100 per person per month. So, and now it's even less than $30 per person per month. So the advancement in technology, the advancement in using the web as a basis for communication changed everything. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to talk about time slips a little bit. Sure. So, well, just to back up on your entity with Chet and Tony, you ended up Unfortunately, Chet passed away and it sounded like his estate or the folks that 
probably inherited his property. There wasn't a meeting of minds in terms of the direction of the company. So then you went in a different direction. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, does time slips happen after Tony Robbins or was that before it? That was before it. Okay. I want to talk about it then. So I'm going to go back in time. I actually use time slips. Uh, when back in my CPA days, it was wow. a, a great tool. I mean, it, when I read that in your bio and learned about you a little bit, it brought back old memories of having to track my time, which I hated with a passion for the record, <laughs> but it was a great tool. Okay. You ultimately exited that company. Can you kind of talk about a little bit of building a company and then exiting it, building value, building systems and processes? I'd love to kind of just get peek into your brain a little bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, I'm going to say it this way. I think it was a combination of skill and luck. Uh, and I think luck played a bigger role than skill, uh, to be honest, because I really never ran a company before, certainly never a company of that size. I started that company with a next door neighbor and an idea. And we took that idea. We both put $5,000 into a bank account and that became the company. And, um, uh, what we did is we worked really, really, really hard on two things in particular. One was the product. We really perfected the product over time. And two was the marketing. The marketing was harder to do than you would think because we only had a total of $10,000 to spend. That was it. Wow. And we blew 6000 of that on two ads in PC Magazine, which was supposed to generate twenty dollars or $30,000 in revenue and generated only $500 in revenue. So we realized what a mistake that was, but it was a great learning experience because from that one ad, even though we made very few sales, we received a lot of leads, like 500 leads that came to us weeks after the ad ran. And do you remember the bingo cards they used to put in magazines where you'd circle the number on the page and it would send those out to all the advertisers. And we would then as advertisers send you information about our products. Well, since we pretty much blew most of our money, I decided to call every single person in those bingo leads. And what I discovered was that almost every single one of them was a person who was in the legal or accounting profession. And that led me to realize that we had to change the way we marketed the product. We could no longer market it to anybody with a PC. We now needed to market it to lawyers and frankly, entirely lawyers at first. We felt like they were going to be easier to knock down as a market than accountants because the need was greater with lawyers to keep track of time. And so we then focused on small moves to try and make big differences. So we changed strategies completely. We spent a lot of time on generating PR. And PR back then was essential to growing any company. And a little bit of time on small advertising, like $30 classified ads, which turned out to be incredibly valuable later as time went on. They, they got to be quite momentous. Yeah. Where do you think you just brought up the word strategy? Where does, you know, a lot of times business owners and entrepreneurs or smaller organizations, they don't really have a strategic plan. It's kind of just grow and what gets thrown at them or maybe new market opportunities. They just kind of go in that direction. Where do you think strategy fits in with a small business in particular in terms of trying to scale to eight figures? What's your thoughts around that? Well, you know, to be honest, my strategy was very straightforward. It was to sell more product. Sure. So. When 
I am the owner of the company, president of the company, CEO of the company, then the company is based on my values. Now, my previous role was in sales. I was selling semiconductors. So I am a sales-oriented CEO. And what I've discovered when working now with clients and building strategy is it's important to understand the nature of the individual before you build a strategy. So for me, it was a very clear picture. I just had to find ways to sell more software. I had to rely on my partner, Neil, to find ways to keep improving the product and make it better and better. And we both did our jobs. I mean, I really, I did everything. I did things that I didn't, had never tried before, but took a lot of risks and tried them. I set up, back then there were things called PC user groups. And uh, I traveled all over the country. I remember it was maybe one year where I was, I was on something like 65 plane rides that year to different PC user groups around the country. And over time, I developed a very natural way of demonstrating the product and inviting people to try it. And, uh, and that was really making a difference as well. And then finally, it was only later after the PR strategy really kicked in and we received a review in a magazine called InfoWorld, which changed the entire landscape for us. It was such a good review that we really started thinking about paid advertising. So that was really last in our strategy mix. And paid advertising works best when you already have a name. It doesn't work that well if nobody knows who you are. So we built a name, we built a reputation, we built a following in a specific vertical market. And then we started to use advertising as a way to take advantage of that. Yeah. So... Would you have a few tips, a couple tips for the audience in terms of scaling a business? Like you're a humble guy and you say, hey, it was luck. And I do understand being in the right spot at the right time. I get it. But I think you undervalue your... When I hear you doing these user group meetings, the first thing I'm thinking, I think all the work that took to go out to these meetings and to be the front person to do that. I mean, that's not like easy. So it just cracks me up in here. We're just talking literally in one minute and I'm hearing all the the sweat equity that went into it. Yeah. Can you give us a couple tips, two or three, if you happen to have it? What are those kind of tips in terms of scaling from wisdom of someone that's taken a business with, I think you said $10,000, $5,000 each in the bank to an eight-figure business exit? What are a couple tips that you can give us that, that would apply to business owners that are thinking about trying to get to eight figures? I'll speak in broad terms and then we sure. can get more specific. So in, first of all, don't start a business until you've figured out exactly who your market is and whether or not they will buy your product. Many business owners make the mistake of having a great idea and saying, I'm going to start a business because this is such a great idea. Well, it probably is a great idea, except nobody really wants to buy it. So. Uh, you could spend a lot of time and money wasted on a great idea that nobody wants to buy. So that would be strategy number one. Uh, strategy number two is don't be afraid to sell it before you have it. So what we were doing is selling time slips even before we could ship the product. Because we knew that if we can figure out who would our best buyer be and how can we market to the individual, or and I literally mean that individual because we we're talking to people not masses of, of marketplaces. We're talking to people. So with the attitude of, look, we just want to reach you as an individual, find out what your needs are. And if it's a fit, then we'd like to show you the software so you could maybe buy it. Well, that played off really, really well in understanding our avatar. 
So who is the person that ideally wants, needs, and would love your product? And then finally, part of it is, this is not like a job. It's far, far more intense than a job, any company, starting any company. So if you come from a job where you may have had an assistant or you had an HR department or you had an IT guy that would come to your office and fix your computer, none of those things exist when you start a company. So either you're going to be all those people or you're going to need to have access to them. And then the final most important tip is make sure that you have double the amount of money you think it's going to take to get you to the point of break even. And I mean, break even, including your salary. So if it's, you say, well, you know, we probably need about $40,000, $50,000. And that's a realistic estimate. I would immediately double that and possibly triple it because A, it's going to take longer. B, it's going to be harder. And C, it's going to cost more than you think. And we were very lucky. In my world, I was selling semiconductors before starting Timeslips Corporation. And I had some very good years. I had a lot of uh, success as a semiconductor salesperson. And I covered some very big brands. And my partner was also very lucky in that he was already a commercial software developer before I met him. So he had some bandwidth as well, some, some bank account he could use to live on while we grew this thing. So I went through most of my money by the time we were ready to start paying ourselves a salary, I had literally $6,000 left in the bank. So, I mean, it was down to the wire, but to, and it took almost, well, it took more than two and a half years to get to that point. So it's not fast. And if you think it will be, then think again, it may not be. Now, could we have raised money? Yeah, possibly. But the multiple, or I should say the punishment of raising money <laughs> is the amount that you give up in doing so. You know, people who invest in companies are taking very big risks. They know in advance that almost, if they'd be lucky, if one out of 10 of their investments actually hits it and does great. So they're not really going to pay much to invest in your company, potentially a company that could make them 10x or 20x or 100x their investment. And furthermore, they're probably not going to invest unless you already have cash flow and even potentially profits. And what they really want to see is scale. They want to see what the growth rates are because that's what they're investing in. So in our case, I was intimidated by venture capitalists and financial people. So I steered clear. We did the entire thing out of our bank account. We only spent what we could afford, when we could afford it. And yes, we had a line of credit, but ultimately we never really raised any money at all. And for us, it was, uh, it was basically because we knew that we had a great product and we wanted to keep it at the end of the day. We wanted it to be ours. We didn't want to lose it because maybe one month we had a bad quarter. We felt confident that we could make it through any quarter as long as me and my partner were together and could, could continue to execute on our basic plan, which is to create a great product and deliver it to the exact people who need it. Hey, this is Tyler. Oftentimes, business owners and entrepreneurs hire me because they are stuck. Their business is stuck. They've hit a wall and can't take their business to the next level. And they're frustrated. When I grew my second business, it took me a while to get the pieces to fit. But once they did, the business scaled fast. In fact, 
It grew to 25 million in annual revenue and ultimately sold for eight figures. So I decided to put together a roadmap for scaling a business. I wanna help stuck business owners that wanna scale but are having challenges. It's called the Scale in Five Roadmap, and you can get a copy by doing the following. Text the number 55444 and type the word SCALE and hit send. A copy of the roadmap will be sent to your inbox. We felt confident that we could make it through any quarter as long as me and my partner were together and could could continue to execute on our basic plan, which is to create a great product and deliver it to the exact people who need it. I want to ask you about having a partnership versus doing it yourself. What are your thoughts about that, having a partner as opposed to just running your own company? Is that... Are you a big fan of it? It could go either way. Thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a hard question to answer. I got very, very lucky <laughs> in choosing a great partner. Uh, to this day, I we're best of best of friends in the world. I uh, was best man at his wedding recently as well. And if I should ever get married again, he'll be best man at mine. But here's the thing: you never know. Just like in a marriage, you never quite know what your partner's like until the heat gets turned up. And, you know, when I said got lucky because this was my next door neighbor, I mean, I chose this guy because he was smart, because he was a nice guy. I had no idea going forward if we were going to fit together. And um, since then, I've had partnerships that were horrible. So odds are, if you could do it yourself, I would suggest you do. If you need a partner, then make sure that partner is someone you could really go the long haul with. That's probably the most important thing I could say. And I would say get it in writing because that's one thing I always see is people go into partnerships and they don't put anything in writing and then the relationship starts to sour or people have different viewpoints. One partner has different viewpoints and then there's nothing says what happens if we were to dissolve or who owns what. So that might be a little sub tip to that. I totally agree. And we had a partnership agreement almost from the very beginning. That's awesome. And probably two years in, we even purchased uh, key man insurance because neither one of us wanted to have each other's wives as business partners should one of us pass. Right, right. That, that sounds like a good, good, good strategic move. Yeah. Hey, I want to switch gears. What's your thoughts around building your own business versus buying a business? Any thoughts as far as which makes most sense? Yeah. And I would say that Buying a business, hands down, is going to be more successful than building one. I'll be honest. I mean, the fact is, is that if you have the money and you can find a business that is already running and already generating revenue and profits, I'd buy it. Try and buy it with their money. Try and do a leverage buyout. Try and uh, basically put the small down payment and pay them out from cash flow from that company when you buy it. That is much smarter than trying to start something from scratch. You should only start something from scratch when you absolutely believe that you have an edge in a way that nobody else does. So that's why I started Clientfolio, my new software company, because there was nothing else out there like what I had. And my fallback position was that even if I built the company and built the software, I would be able to use it for the rest of my life. And that was very important to me. Right. So what's your thoughts taking this one step further? What about an acquisition strategy for a small business in terms of like buying a business uh, for a business that you already have established to, to grow faster? Do you think that makes sense or where would that fit in, in your opinion? You have to be careful. And here's why I say it. It could be a distraction. Okay. So you, you need to make sure that if you're 
if you already are running a successful business and for some reason uh, you decide that you want to grow much faster than you're growing, then acquisition does make sense. But you need to make sure that you're prepared for what could happen. And that may mean that the company you acquire with best intentions and with all the due diligence possible may turn out to be a complete drain on your current business. So you have to be super careful about that. And it's generally a strategy that is not employed early in the game. It's usually a later, a later strategy after your business has been fully established and is scaling nicely. Okay. So now I want to jump back over to the whole remote workforce and just the invisible organization. Sure. Do you think this remote workforce is here to stay? I already, you know, in our neck of the woods, West Coast, you're hearing like Apple, for example, saying, hey, we want people to come back in and they're kind of being resistant to it right now. Do you think this is a long-term thing, remote workforce? Do you think it's going to dissipate? What's your thoughts around it? It's definitely not going to dissipate. It's not a short-term issue. It's here to stay. And frankly, it's been here for the last decade. It's only been recently that it became, it really became a component of what is most important in a business. But up until this point, I mean, maybe you didn't realize this, but most airline reservation centers have been virtual probably since 2008, 2009. So, I mean, when you spoke back then, it was a surprise. You didn't realize when you spoke uh, to someone at Southwest Air or JetBlue that you're talking to somebody sitting in their kitchen. You know, until you heard the dog bark, you didn't realize you're talking to somebody who's working from home. But that's been in place now for many, many years. Uh, there was a landmark study in 2014 uh, by Stanford University called Does Working From Home Work? And what they claimed was that in general, people who worked from home were happier, generated a 14% increase in profitability for the company over non-remote workers, and had virtually zero attrition. Wow. Wow. Those are strong numbers. Now, do you feel every business should have some component of working from home? Because obviously some businesses, for whatever reason, might have to have some, like you mentioned in your book, like client interface at an office or maybe production or something that would require them to have to have a facility. But do you think every business should either be completely remote or have some element of remote? What's your thoughts around that? Well, I mean, everybody's business already does have elements of their business that's remote. How many of you have bookkeepers that don't work at your company? How many of you have IT people that that can basically click into your systems and fix them? I mean, think about it. I mean, unless you're a restaurant, I mean, where you're literally cooking food, serving food, cleaning up, mopping floors. I mean, those folks can't be virtual, but their admin can be. Their advertising and marketing can be. So I would say most businesses already have a virtual component to them. But there's no point in turning a company virtual unless it pays. And where it pays is usually in the sales and customer service uh, teams. That's where it pays the most. Okay. Can you expand off that? Why does it pay the most in customer service and sales teams? Sure. Well, first of all, they're on the phones. So why shouldn't they be home and on the phones and not occupying your space which you're paying a ridiculous amount of rent for and paying insurance and paying to heat that space. And of course, don't forget the wear and tear on those individuals and commuting. And, and now we're, we're stuck in this whole climate cycle thing and, and ESG and all this baloney. And now from here, uh, what's happening is that we're telling people to not drive anymore. They don't need to expend energy to get to work. 
All they have to do is get up, log in, and work. Now, there are some businesses like Apple that, that have had issues as it relates to culture. Well, that's because, I mean, I can't say for sure because I don't work there, but in our programs, when if you read my book, Power Tribes, I talk a lot about building a culture in advance of creating a network of people that would re- operate remotely. And that culture is what sustains us as remote workers. And that if that's in place, in most cases, uh, remote workers are far more productive. And of course, there's no water cooler to, to waste time in, in front of. There's There's no chit chat or social issues that are negative. And yet a good CEO can still keep everybody engaged, can still keep the morale high and the the connection to the message of the company strong. Right. In the book, you really talked about results. I mean, it's really about results, results, results. You just made the comment, good CEO. Do you feel a CEO has to develop or, or grow in terms of being able to manage a remote workforce? What does that look like in your mind as far as if suddenly you go to remote workforces or some growing that leadership has to do to be able to manage that workforce? Yeah, it's a completely different management style, actually. Yeah. And if you read in The Invisible Organization, the first third of the book talks about the qualities of the CEO and how they must manage a virtual company. You know, I came from the school of the Tom Peters School of In Search for Excellence, where MBWA, management by walking around, was how I managed Time Slips Corporation. Well, by the time I got to the point of running the uh, Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes organization, there was no place to walk around except my bedroom. <laughs> so, you know, I had to develop a different style of, of management and communication. And that was far more intense than it was not live, than a live environment, much more intense, but much more rewarding too, because the relationships could be even deeper. I like that. Hey, other thing I wanted to talk with you about just in terms of uh, improving staff performance in a remote environment. Any tips in terms of uh, how you can just get the most out of your staff in a remote environment and without feeling like it's a micromanaged or over-zoomed environment where you're constantly in meetings? What are your thoughts around that? Well, there are a lot of tools that, you know, it's like... um, Trust but verify. I think it was President Reagan who said that. I, same thing here. I mean, if you're going to send someone home to work and you don't have a system to monitor whether or not they're actually doing anything, then you're not succeeding as a as a manager or a CEO. You need to make sure that you trust but verify. Trust them to do a good job, but verify that they are. And when they're not, correct them. Don't fire them because after all, you've done a lot to train them. So correct them and correct them again until they get it. And then if if they're not getting it, then of course you can choose something other than that. But the bottom line is that I think all of us want to deliver a, I think everybody by nature wants to be good at what they do. The only reason they don't is if they hate it. And if they hate it, it's possibly their fault, but it might be yours as a manager. And I think you could look at what you're doing to make them hate it. Like you said, uh, micromanaging uh, as one example. Yeah. Okay. That's great, great. Great feedback there. Hey, I always love to end with either a business or a life tip. If you have one for us that we can apply and hopefully either make our business or our life better. Anything off the top of your head? Well, the one thing that I that I've, I realized uh, after I sold my company was that I wasted years thinking only of the end result. Someday when we sell this company, then I'll... And I guess my life tip is there is no someday. Do it now, be it now, have it now, don't wait. 
So if it's a vacation, you know, I'm not saying that you should drop out of your company to do nothing but travel, unless of course you can do that remotely and some do. But what I am saying is live your life. Don't always think that, you know, it will, everything good will happen after some particular event happens. Do it now, have it now, be it now, travel now, be with the people that you love now and allow them to be with you. Because too many of us get so hung up on the details of work and focus on that even during off hours. And if I look back, I could say that that was one of my mistakes. I wish I would have done more of that. Yeah, I'd echo you on that one. I'm still learning. Sometimes I fall into that do it later trap, but I, I, I can really relate to that one. That's a great one. Hey, your website is Mitch. Russo360.com. Russo is spelled R-U-S-S-O. And then that's 360.com. So I'll say it one more time. Mitch Russo360.com. I'll put it on my show notes at thinktyler.com. Hey, Mitch, if people wanted to reach out to you other than this website, is there anywhere else you'd like them to go? Sure. You could just send me an email and say, hi, Mitch Russo, one word, Mitch Russo at gmail.com. Awesome. Okay. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show. I mean, I just loved your book. I know you've got a couple others I got to read here in the near future, but you just have a wealth of wisdom and, and you have a great way of communicating. By the way, if for no other reason, go to MitchRusso360.com, check out his photography. Like, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. You remind me, you have such an HDR type uh, feel to some of your pictures. They're just gorgeous. You're, you're really an artist too. Thank you. Not only are you great at building businesses, but you're an artist too. So that's pretty impressive. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that, Tyler. Well, thanks again for being part of the show. And I hope you can jump on again, maybe your next book or something. I'd love to talk to you again. Sounds good. Okay, take care. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.